What? <laughs> hey, what's happening with the 24-hour thing? It's this weekend. Yeah, you never sent me an email about it. Oh, yeah, because I asked Kat for more information, but... It's fine. Um, basically, this weekend. Hey, um, it's on Sunday. It's on Sunday. It's on Sunday. It starts, so wait, it starts like Sunday at 8 and it's ends at Sunday at 8? Yeah, probably. Yeah, something like that. It's like 12 hours. It is yeah, 12 so hours. 8 to 8. Like I said 24 hours, but that was just me being yeah, wrong. Yeah, it's like musical. Yeah, it's like 8 to 8. Yeah. So it's just all day Sunday. Just come through. Yeah. It'll be fun. It'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. Okay. And 24 hours left. So wait. <laughs> so wait, but where? Where should people go? Probably the SCC. I think the SCC, but The SCC I, theater. Anyway, if you know where Yeah, I'm gonna I've been texting Pass and Chief. I'll let you know in one second. Okay. A man's life is no more than to say one. <laughs> See, it's all a second. That's the point. No, I did just text the girl. Oh, so we're, we're, we're talking about not a New York second. No, we're no, talking, no, no. We're, we're talking, talking more like, like a Wichita like, second. Yeah, like a Wyoming second. A Wyoming second, yeah. yeah. I, had a, I had a grad student here. No, I didn't know where it was. Nobody cares. I know, I know. So that's the day of the final, and it's worth about 60% of your grade. So, um, and you do have to read those other four plays for the final as well. So now that we're all set with that. Um, Good. <laughs> Theater people, they know all the jokes. Um, all right. Uh, so, knocking at the gate of Macbeth, um, the knocking at the gate in Macbeth, which we didn't uh, finish talking about. What is um, De Quincey's argument? What's he claim? Why does he think that is Shakespeare? Why does he think it works? Decide. Okay, so we're just, I think just Royce, right? Okay. Okay, look, you know that at least a little bit of Macbeth is not Shakespeare. At least a little bit of it is Middleton. Um, possibly a lot of the Hecate scene is Middleton. Uh, this has been argued uh, for at least a century that the Hecate scene, because some of it looks, some of it is just a reference to a song by Middleton. Some of it looks like it is uh, not really relevant to Macbeth. So the, so the idea that stuff has been added, that Macbeth isn't quite all perfectly Shakespeare, that's something that, that is true. It's not all Shakespeare. Probably almost everything that we really, really care about is Shakespeare, but there is stuff that's not Shakespeare in it. And then there are editors who are also adding other stuff that's not Shakespeare. So one of the things that the 18th century editors realized as they did a kind of historical examination, analysis, um, uh, just, just re suscitation or um, um, uh, 
reproduction of what was going on in Shakespeare's theater, what they realized is that actors going to act and actors are going to ad lib. <laughs> if you guys watch like Curb Your Enthusiasm, you probably know a whole lot of that is ad libbed. And um, the ad libbing can sometimes be really good and sometimes be really painful uh, to watch, partly because it's so over the top. So what, the, what people like Coleridge and Johnson are doing, they who are great poets themselves and who do, really do have a, a deep understanding of poetry, what they're doing is they're trying to figure out what kind of stuff has been foisted onto Shakespeare's plays and what hasn't. And they, because there's a whole lot that they're not understanding, and one of the reasons that I'm asking you to read their notes is that you can see them being puzzled by things that we've gotten sufficiently used to that we're not really puzzled by them anymore, or that there have been enough footnotes about explaining them that we believe that the footnotes are right. But you can see them being puzzled by stuff that actually is puzzling. And it, in a way, what they get you to do, what reading... Macbeth with 18th or early 19th century eyes gets you to do is to read it with fresh eyes, with eyes that don't know the standard accepted version of the play as well as we do. So if you read it with fresh eyes, you can see that there are things that clearly seem wrong, but things that also do seem puzzling that they are trying to unpuzzle for themselves. One of Johnson's notes uh, that about Act Three has to do with whether there's been some that whether the well no let me ask you what passage does Johnson think, do, does anyone recall, because you all read it so freshly, so I'm going to ask, do you recall from your very recent reading of Johnson's notes on Act 3, what passage he once thought was added by an actor who was pleased with his own knowledge, but that he then came to think was actually Shakespearean? He changes his mind, and he said the notes are a little bit obscure, but he gives you his early notes and then um, his revisions of his own notes. So do you recall what passage he thinks he thought once was added, but then decided was not? You can look also. It is permissible to recall by rereading. So it is, um, oh, why? Why, why, why do they do it this way? Okay, I'll do it differently. Oh, that's the wrong way to do it too. Um, so if you go to the Johnson, He's looking at Act 3, Scene 1, Line 56. If you um, 
it's worth printing this stuff out. I know, I know we're not looking mu at it much. Yeah, so what is it? Caesar. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, what what Macbeth says is that when he's with Banquo, he feels that his own my genius is rebuked. He says, um, as it is said, Mark Antony's was by Caesar. So anyone know what that's a reference to? It's something that we'll see in Antony and Cleopatra. So it's Act Three, Scene One, Line Fifty Six. Have you found it, Chris? Yes. You want to read it? The Caesar one? Yeah. Okay. Um, there's none but he whose being I do fear, and under him my genius is rebuked, as it is said Mark Antony's was by Caesar. Keep going. He chid the sisters when first they put, they put the, king, the name of king upon you, and bade them speak to him. Okay, and so, okay, that's good. So what's he referring to there? He's remembering something earlier in the play. What's he referring to? When Banco was like, oh, like he's like, oh, like this is ridiculous. And then he's like, oh, tell me what's going to happen to me. Yeah. And Macbeth takes that as chiding the sisters. That is, that they tell Macbeth all this good news. And then Banquo isn't afraid of them. And he says, yeah, and what do you have to say to me? And so, Macbeth, this is a place where it's worth thinking about if you're ever directing the play, theater people. Uh, whether this gives you some, this tells you something about how the earlier scene should be played or was played. That is, how much should Banquo do talk to the to the weird sisters in a chiding voice, given the fact that that's Macbeth's recollection of what happened there, and he's reminding us of what happened there too. Matt. Uh, so I might be thinking of an entirely different part of Mark Antony, but I remember seeing a, a film version of Mark Antony. Cleopatra, and mm -hmm. uh, this line reminds me of there's a scene where uh, Caesar and Cleopatra first meet, and the whole time as they're talking, Cleopatra is saying that she's talking about how her, her maps are better than Caesar's, and they're more updated with everything that they have to offer, and mm -hmm. that her soldiers are better equipped to fight the forces that are coming off to get rid of Caesar. Huh. I wonder if that's Shaw. It's not Shakespeare. Um, might be Rome. Probably. Uh, did you see? Have Have you guys seen Rome? The, it was it was on maybe ten years ago. I think it's on Netflix. It's worth watching. Um, okay. Anyhow, um, it's not it's not Annie and Cleopatra. Okay. Uh, Shaw has a play called Caesar and Cleopatra, which I haven't read in um, a long, not in 10 or 15 years when I was an undergrad, um, but, yeah. <laughs> okay, that worked. Um, uh, I don't remember whether that's in Shaw. I don't recollect it from Shaw, but anyhow, it's not Shakespeare. Uh, but the particular moment in Antony and Cleopatra, no one recalls? No one, um, yeah. Well, there is, somebody tells um, Antony, don't hang out around Caesar, because he, he just will always have shiny. I cannot remember who says The that. soothsayer. The soothsayer yeah. says to Antony yeah. that his genius, which always makes him do well, 
will always make him do well except when he's near Caesar. So remember, this is Octavian, Octavius Caesar, known as Octavian, and later known as Augustus. This is the nephew, grandnephew, and adopted son of Julius Caesar, and Julius Caesar is assassinated in the play of that name. Um, and um, then um, Antony and Octavian uh, defeat the assassins, and they take over the rulership of the Roman um, nation. And then Antony and Cleopatra is the sequel to that. It's what happens when the people who are now run, running the, the um, uh, polity fall into dissension with each other. And um, finally, there's only going to be one winner, and that winner is Octavius, and then he becomes Augustus. That's, that's the basic, basic history. But what, what the soothsayer says, so there's a soothsayer in Julius Caesar, some of you will recall, who says, beware the Ides of March. Yeah, so uh, there's another soothsayer in Antony and Cleopatra who again, gives grim warnings and grim prognostications about what's going to happen. And the soothsayer explains to Antony that the spirit or genius who looks over Caesar is um, Antony's spirit or genius is cowed by Caesar's. So that's what is being referred to here. And um, what Johnson thinks is that this was an add-on to Macbeth. He says, or what he, he said, though I would not often assume the critic's privilege of being confident where certainty cannot be obtained, nor indulge myself too far in departing from the established reading, yet I cannot but propose the rejection of this passage, which I believe was an insertion of some player that having so much learning as to discover to what Shakespeare alluded, was not willing that his audience should be less knowing than himself, and has therefore weakened the author's sense by the intrusion of a remote and useless image into a speech bursting from a man wholly possessed with his own present condition, and therefore not at leisure to explain his own allusions to himself." which is pretty funny. That's my spirit is rebuked. You know, like Mark Antony's was by Caesar's. Um, so he's explaining an allusion to himself. He's making a, an allusion to something um, that happened to someone else, and now he's, he's speaking alone, but he's got to explain it to himself. And so Johnson thinks um, that's really not that likely that someone would do that. So Johnson takes that to be an intrusion. I just love the idea. Notice the next time you explain an illusion to yourself when you're very upset about something. Um, see if you then say something like, um, oh, it's like when Hamlet is so angry at his mother. Um, so, um, yeah, that was interesting, the way Hamlet was angry at his mother, um, when you're really angry at your mother. Um, so uh, John, Johnson thinks that that's a player adding, um, um, foisting it in, yeah. Um, wasn't Hamlet one of the players in his own plays? Wasn't Hamlet. Wasn't uh, not Shakespeare, Hamlet, yes. Shakespeare, one of the players yes. in his own plays? Yeah, he was. So, um, but, so couldn't he have been the player that added it in? Well, what... <laughs> 
<laughs> if you think that he's playing Macbeth, which he isn't. Oh, right. Um, Shakespeare was not that good an actor. <laughs> so, I mean, he, he, was, he was an actor, but as far as anyone knows, and there's really good evidence for this, he played fairly minor roles. And he, he was, you know, the way David Lynch plays fairly minor roles in his own movies and shows. Um, and what, so, so probably I'm the only person in the country today comparing Shakespeare to David Lynch as an actor, but um, it, it, it may be helpful. And, yeah. Didn't you say once that uh, Shakespeare would have played the yeah, there's some evidence that he played the ghost in Hamlet. So he would, and the ghost doesn't have that many lines. Uh, but there's, it, it's, there is evidence independently of the psychological evidence that Shakespeare played the ghost. But the psychological evidence that is interesting, and this is what James Joyce has said about it, is that uh, then there'd be a kind of wish fulfillment there where Shakespeare is the, um, in real life, the living son I mean, excuse me, the living father of a dead son whose name was Hamlet, and then in Hamlet he reverses it and becomes the dead father of a living son. And that's pretty interesting, um, uh, pretty interesting wish fulfillment. You can do that in theater. So, but here it would, it uh, probably was Burbage who played Macbeth. Who's Burbage, anyone? Ooh. Wasn't he like his favorite? No, it was the head of the, the, the I can't remember the name of the players. The the head the, the Kingsman. The Kingsman. The the Queen. Well, it's Queen Elizabeth. The, no, yeah, the Lord, first Lord Chamberlain's the, man. Yeah, the, that's what I mean. It was he was the head of like. He was the best actor. He was he was actually not the head as in he he was the leading actor. He was the Brad Pitt, but he wasn't the um, owner. There were basically two owners of Shakespeare's company. So there's, uh, it's a repertory company, and all the actors have shares in the in the theatrical company itself. Uh, but they also were part owners of the theater. And the two part owners, and th those are the ones who had the biggest financial investment and the most control over it, were Shakespeare and Robert Armin, who is who? Those who took the class from me? Yeah. He played the fool in most of the plays that have a fool. He was like a comedic actor. Yeah. He, he was an amazing performer uh, and, and uh, a comic actor. And he did one-man shows, which still survive. And uh, he would do, he, he, he did this thing that, that goes all the way back in stand-up. I mean, he basically did stand-up. And he did this thing that goes all the way back, which is he would insult the audience. That, that is, he would say, ask me a question, and they would ask him a question, and then he would find some way to twist that question around to insult the questioner. And um, there, there was a whole lot of really interesting back and forth. And he wrote a couple of books which survive, which you can read on Google Books, one called Quips Upon Questions. Uh, he's a fascinating person and one of the two great fools in Shakespeare's company. Yeah. Would he have played the porter? It's possible. So this is, this is where you start speculating, but it's very possible he would have played the porter. Uh, it's likely that he played Iago, and um, he definitely played the fool in Twelfth Night and in King Lear. Yeah. Um, maybe I'm imagining this, but didn't, I think you also said something about him doing like acrobatic yeah. tricks too and stuff. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, but then there was another, you might actually though be thinking about Will Kemp, who is the previous fool in Shakespeare's uh, in, in Shakespeare's company. So there's a fool named Will Kemp who did this amazing thing, which is where he hopped 
um, from town to town all over England and would give kisses to any women. People knew he was coming, and they would line up to be kissed by him as he hopped from town to town, and he went all over England doing that. You uh, never told us. Okay. <laughs> I think you might have been late that day. I know, I know it's unusual. Like, Physically, yes. Wait, what? Miles and miles. Like literally he would on one leg? Yeah. Why? <laughs> it was a thing. Can he switch legs? Yes, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, no, no, it was, it was just, it was, it was, it was, everyone was amazed by this, that he would do this thing, and he, and this famous, it, it was very famous, and, and people got really into it, and he would come through your town, and uh, it was cool. So, at any rate, he quit, he quit the Lord Chamberlain's Men, and then Shakespeare, um, then they took in Robert Armin, who replaced him. It made, no one really knows what happened, but something happened. It might be that, that uh, he had a fight with them. It might be that they always wanted Robert Armin, and they finally got him. But there was, it, it looks like there was some bla- bad blood. But Shakespeare definitely wrote stuff to appeal to Robert Armin's talents and also to make him, uh, to introduce him to people who came to his company. So you can tell that in the way Shakespeare is writing, especially in <clears throat> Twelfth Night, what he's writing for The Fool in Twelfth Night. So Robert Armin might have played the porter. It, it would make sense. And, but there we don't know. But we do know some of, some of the um, actors and some of the roles. Some of them are in the folio. If you look at the folio, you get, the, you get a list of... In some of the plays, we talked about this a little bit. I know this this is advanced Shakespeare, so this minutiae is actually, you don't need to know it, but it still gives it a sense of um, uh, depth and, and complication. The folio, you know how at the beginning of Shakespeare's plays, there's always who the actors are that you, I mean, who the characters are that you can switch back to if you forget who was Lennox and who was Ross and who was Willoughby and who was Angus. Um, so you can, so... That, if you look at the folio, you'll find that only about, I think it's a quarter of the plays have that list, and the other plays don't. So if you look at, like, the Norton Shakespeare, the list will usually be in brackets, which means it's editorial, but sometimes it won't, which means that they're actually getting it from the folio, although they always add things um, to explain the reason for that is, again, probably a miscalculation about how much paper is needed so that they will put in the dramatis personae when there's room or maybe when there's too much room and they will leave it out if they're short of paper because they've miscalculated the printing um, in advance. So they, they print a couple pages, then they realize, oh no, we have to do two pages and we only have one page. Let's do prose and no dramatis personae. And then they can fit it in. Um, sometimes there'll be um, illustrations or designs to fill up blank pages. Sometimes uh, there won't be illustrations and designs because there'll be no room for them. Another thing you should know, just so you should know it, is something called a catchword. Does anyone know what a catchword is? So if you read, you, should, you guys should look at the Brandeis First Folio online. Um, you should look at the Brandeis First Folio, but you should definitely look at it online. The, if you read any book through, I think, around the mid-18th century, what you will see is that at the bottom of every page, there is, what you'll have is 
just a page of text like this. And at the bottom, there will be a word, which I'll say word, but it will rarely be word. It will usually be something else. That will be just a single word on the bottom right. Has anyone ever noticed that? So that word is called a catch word. And the reason is that it's actually there for the printer because it is the first word of the next page. So that way the printer can confirm. It's a check bit, as we computer scientists say. It's a way that the printer can confirm that the, are you looking at the first folio? Yes. Pretty cool, right? Yeah. See, what's the catch word on that page? Um, the last one was like, and then like is the first. Yeah, so then it's the first word on the next page. Yeah. So it could be like, and then like, and that way the printer knows um, with some confidence that the, that the order is correct. So, so the catchwords are there also. So the, these are things just to know about what older books, what the, what the pages look like and why they look that way, why verse is sometimes printed as prose, why occasionally prose is printed as verse, why there's some dramatic, dramatis personae in some plays and not in others, why there are designs on some pages and not others, and so on. It's really interesting to just do this sort of minute reconstruction of what the printers were doing when they were doing it, what mistakes they were making. Every mistake is a gift. Every mistake is a way of figuring out something real about real people. Another thing that people figured out, obviously this is not stuff that you need to know, but it's stuff that's fun to know, is that in the 20th century, they started figuring out individual typesetters and who, who was typesetting which pages and they didn't know their names. They don't know their names. Their names are lost forever. But they, get, they, they got called Compositor A, Compositor B, and so on. And the way they, they knew them is that they had particular ways of spelling or misspelling words. So Compositor A would always um, say something like, again, this is, I don't know if this, is, this is actual example is true, but would, would always set it like that, whereas Compositor B would set it like this. And you could tell that they had particular signature ways of spelling words and of making mistakes. Yeah? And this was to avoid the, the worry of plagiarism, right? No. Why? You well, mean? In case, well, in case someone ever tries to, say, reprint uh, Macbeth and they happen to miss or correct the different typesettings that are in place. You so mean now? You mean back then or now? Back then. Um, no, no, I don't think so. I think it's, it's just that the, these are really, really minute things. There were no correct spellings in Shakespeare's day. Uh, the idea, regu the regulation of spelling is 18th century. That's when, bef before the 18th century, you needed to learn Latin, but you didn't need to know how to spell English. And now you know how to spell English, but you don't have to learn Latin. It's a loss in general. Um, <laughs> but um, no, what it, it, there were other things that they were doing with the quartos to, because there were plagiarized or, or um, pirated quartos. But it didn't have to do with spelling of words. That was, that was just um, different typesetters had different ways of spelling. Um, yeah. Um, would a different typesetter potentially work on like the same play? Because I remember I was reading some version of one of the folios, and 
like the same word was spelled like three different yeah. ways on one page. Yes. And I was like, <laughs> so, yeah, sometimes it's uh, just okay. that, yeah, sometimes it's just that because there's no um, correct spelling, it's okay to do that. Yeah, you and, spell however you feel. Yeah, and if you're, and, and if, if um, lines are rhyming, you're mm. going to want to spell the rhymed words the same way, which we don't do anymore. So, uh, you know, you have what a, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry, and I is E-Y-E, and symmetry is T-R-Y. Um, but in Shakespeare's day, it, you would probably, um, I don't know if, what you would do with that, but you would probably do rhymed words. You would want them to have the same endings on the page just to underline the rhyme, even if it wasn't your usual way of spelling. So it, it takes a huge amount of detective work, and uh, people did the detective work. Um, it's interesting. It's nice that they did it and that we don't have to. Yeah, Nicole. Um, for the ones that are in brackets, those are the ones that are were originally written by Shakespeare or those are the ones that were added in? No, brackets is al always means editorial. So if uh, you're reading something in their brackets, it means that you are, you are looking at some kind of editorial intervention. And it depends on the edition of the play whether they're going to give you brackets or not. In the Arden, they don't because they have on the bottom of the page, you can just always check the bottom of the page to see what was originally in the folio and what editors changed it and um, how and why they changed it. If that's not enough for you, you can find on Google Books, you can find something called a New Variorum Macbeth, which is free because it's not so new anymore um, since it's at the end of the 19th century. Uh, but the New Variorum Macbeth, um, here I'll show you what a page of it looks like. Um, and you can do it on Google Play. Um, so I'm not going to show you a typical page, but I'm going to show you a, uh, well, this is actually pretty typical. So what you can see, I don't know how well you can see it, but you have five lines of Shakespeare up here. So those five lines are, with bare-faced power, sweep him from my sight and bid my will avouch it, yet I must not. So this is Macbeth talking to the murderers. For certain friends that are both his and mine, whose loves I may not drop, but wail his fall, who I myself struck down, and thence it is. So those are the five lines on that page. Then right underneath it, do you see that there's a line drawn? I'm sorry it's so small. Um, right above the line drawn are the editorial uh, conjectures. So... Um, with, so, with bareface power sweep him from, uh, sorry, who I myself struck down, and thence it is, um, and then what they say there is, who, who I myself struck down, that the who is what the folio says, what Shakespeare's editor Rao says, what, uh, what five or six other editors all accept who, but Pope, Alexander Pope, thinks it's ungrammatical because it should be who I myself struck down or whom I myself struck down. So Pope changes it to whom. So all the, uh, the folio says it's who and lots of editors accept who, but the folio changes it to whom. And then the note on that, so that's at the very bottom of the page, what you have now are, are a huge number of notes on those five lines, which are themselves not that hard or that interesting. The note on who, Clarendon, um, there is no doubt that who in Shakespeare's time was frequently used for the objective case 
it still is colloquially C, and then he gives you two more scenes in Macbeth, The Merchant of Venice, Two Gentlemen of Verona, um, and then there's someone else who says the same thing. Uh, so the variorum Shakespeare is the state of, pretty much the state of knowledge about the plays at the end of the 19th century. And it's free on Google Books. And uh, you will, again, the kind of thing you're doing reading Johnson and Coleridge, uh, you'll get in spades if you look at the variorum Shakespeare. They're cool. They used to be expensive. Now they're really cheap in used bookstores if you want a solid copy just because you can get them. Uh, if, you, if you want a hard copy, just because you can get them on Google Books. Okay, so this is all about the knocking of the gate of Macbeth um, because what the original question was is, was that added? Then we looked at another possible place where there's an argument that something has been added, namely the, uh, the Mark Antony's was by Shakespeare. Just to finish what Johnson says about that, um, so Johnson says that um, some actor had weakened the author's sense by the intrusion of a remote and useless image into a speech bursting from a man wholly possessed with his own present condition and therefore not at leisure to explain his own allusions to himself. I still love that, explain, not at leisure to explain his own allusions to himself. If these words are taken away, by which not only the thought but the numbers are injured, the lines of Shakespeare close together without any traces of a breach. My genius is rebuked. He chid the sisters. So if you leave out, uh, my genius is rebuked as, um, what, how does it go, Grace? As twas said, Mark Antony. Okay. As it was said, Mark Antony's was by Caesar. He chid the sisters yeah. when first... So what he doesn't like is, as it was said. If you, if you um, try to make that into iambic pentameter, it's hard. Um, as tis said, Mark Antony's was by Caesar, that would work. But as it was said, Mark Antony's was by Caesar, that's slightly unmetrical. What do you have? They're in different lines, at least. Yeah, well, that the, again, the line endings are editorial as well. Okay. Um, so some editors, when they're worrying about the meter, um, so you have as it was said at the end of the line? I have as it is said as it, at it, the it, end of the line. So my genius is rebuked as it is said. Yeah, so I think, that, I think that's a version that's trying to make it more metrical. Yeah, than, and then the next line is metrical the folio. with Mark Antony and Caesar and Chiding the Sisters. Yeah. So if so, Johnson says, leave that out, and you get my genius is rebuked. He chid the sisters, and um, that that works fine. But then Johnson goes on. This note was written before I was fully acquainted with Shakespeare's manner. He changes his mind, and I do not now think of it of much weight. For though the words which I was once willing to eject seem interpolated, I believe they may still be genuine and added by the author in his revision. And then he talks about um, another critic of Shakespeare um, and who, who was sure that it was there. But at any rate, so there's a question, are things being added to the plays or not? And if they are, who's doing the adding? And so what Coleridge thinks is that the, the Porter scene is something added. So what's De Quincey's argument for it being Shakespearean? I think it's I think it's pretty brilliant. Yeah. Um, I have a question about that actually. 
Okay. Um, if we can make the argument that things were added into this play, can we make the argument that those things were added under the supervision of Shakespeare, or were they added without his knowledge? Well, so there is, again, you have to get, decide um, um, what kind of dense picture you believe about what's going on in Shakespearean theater. So Shakespeare, there, Shakespeare is writing these plays, and he clearly is writing them, but he's writing them for actors who are extremely good at learning parts very, very quickly. And um, this, this actually raises the interesting question, why are plays in blank verse? Why are they in poetry to begin with? which you kind of learn when you're in middle school or high school that Shakespeare's plays are in verse. And, and if you recall what it was like to learn that, you wonder, is that a good idea to be writing plays in poetry? Like, it's a play. It's the story. Well, you don't see many, many movies that are in poetry. There are a couple. But you don't see many, many movies that are in poetry. So why are these plays written in poetry? And then what... Um, well, what did you guys think when you first learned that Shakespeare was... Yeah. Well, we learned that, like, one thing is it shows the social structures, so, like, like certain characters don't speak in verse at all, and then magical creatures speak in, like, total rhyme right. and everything, so... Yeah. So one thing is that it is true that if people are speaking in poetry... If, if you have a play in which there's poetry and prose, there will be some correlation between class or status and speaking and whether you speak in poetry or prose that the higher class you are the more likely to, you are to be speaking in poetry um, some correlation uh, Hamlet will sometimes speak in prose but then you say okay maybe when Hamlet is mad or acting mad he speaks in prose yeah Talia maybe this was just me but I had to memorize like a lot of different passages for whatever reason in elementary school and I always found it easier to memorize things like poetry or verse rather than just, like, plan? Yeah. So one answer is that it's actually easier to memorize poetry than prose. And the actors, these plays are not being performed. It's not like now where, where if a play is a hit, it'll be performed, you know, uh, three, our 3,000th 3, performance. How many times has Hamilton been performed in New York? So... But it's not like that then. A play would be performed like for a week or two. And so what's going on, it may, it may be revived, but it's not the case. There are lots and lots of plays. You know, it's like, going to, it's like going to the theater now, going to the movies, but without the, without the movie streaming when you're done. So they're at the theater for a week or two. The plays are at the theater for a week or two, and that's it. And so the actors are learning a ridiculous number of plays every year and they're not only learning their parts they're 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 um, learning new blockings or it seems to be that they're learning new blockings there's all sorts of stuff that they have to learn so people are reconstructing theatrical history one thing that they are um, uh, thinking about and actually getting pretty good evidence about is that the blocking was pretty ritualized. That is, that a certain kind of scene would always be blocked in the same way. Uh, theater people, what does blocking mean? It's like where you stand, what you do, like how you are like physically on stage. 
Yeah, so it's it's the way the characters are moving with respect to each other and with respect to the stage. So there's certain things that would always happen that you would always if there if you had a, if you had a play with uh, if you had a scene with three characters, um, the characters would always do the same thing. So it's a little bit you should imagine it being a little bit like South Park. That is that um, the the movement of actors is stylized um, as it is in South Park. And uh, where people stand and how they interact with each other, it's always the same. So in South Park, you can take the same scene and do um, dozens of different uh, um, voiceovers for that scene. And, you know, it'll, it'll be um, Cartman walking down. You guys all watch South Park, right? No? It used to. Oh, it's just getting better and better. <laughs> it really is. After Trump was elected, it got so good. You just don't watch much TV. Uh, um, I, watch, I watch some TV, but, but not... I mean, like, I watched a lot of the other variants of those shows, like Family Guy and The Simpsons and stuff like that, but, but never much South Park. Yeah, no. Preferring Family Guy to South Park is like preferring Marlowe to Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> Family Guy's great. This is around about the time that my, my father, who was born in the 50s, would... Uh, whenever somebody doesn't like something that he likes, he calls them a communist. I don't think I called you a commie, but I might be willing to. It's what might have happened. Yes. Um, Okay, so just think of Cartman walking down the corridor uh, with his friends and Kenny looking unhappy. And you. Those are in South Park. Well, I know. Kenny's the one who always dies. Yes. He has, like, the he's sweater. The he's, he's, got, he's got the parka. They killed Kenny. Over his mouth. He's like... Yeah. Okay. Yes, that's Kenny. So that, sh- that should explain everything. I've seen it, like, once. Uh, Sorry. No, it's great. You have, like, 40 seasons of South Park or something <laughs> that you can enjoy. Um, okay, so one of... So one idea is that, yeah, they have, to do, they have to memorize a whole lot of stuff, and they have to do it quickly. And what that means is that there's this kind of, it's like improv now. That is, if you, do, any of you, you theater people do improv? Okay, so people who do improv, they know what to do in certain situations. And it's not that they know what they're going to say, but they know what, where they're supposed to go if they're arguing. Um, how they're supposed to circle each other if they get into an argument within the improv, Um, how they're supposed to look threatening, how they're supposed to back down. And that is stylized. That's ritualized. That's something that they already know. So that was true in Shakespeare's day also for the blocking of the plays. But the most interesting reason for for, for the iambic pentameter is that it enabled what a critic now calls this a cognitive uh, critic of Shakespeare. Um, it, this is in a book, a really interesting book called Cognition in the Globe, um, and her name is Ellen Tribble, T-R-I-B-B-L-E, that iambic pentameter enables what's called fluent forgetting. And what that means <coughs> is... If you've ever, like, studied for a Shakespeare exam and read, like, five Shakespeare plays over the course of two days, um, you will find yourself dreaming iambic pentameter when that happens. And uh, what happens is you just get into the swing of it, and um, you're just producing iambic sentences very, very easily in your mind. And they may be nonsensical, but they're iambic. 
And iambic pentameter is an easy, it's the easiest thing to ad lib if you're ad libbing poetry. Iambic pentameter is the easiest poetry to ad lib because it's the closest to spoken English, but it is also poetry. Because that was the whole point of iambic pentameter, right? Because it was something that originated in Roman theater where all of their uh, theater productions were produced to like music and the, mm -hmm. iambic, and the pentameter was supposed to line up with like the rhythm of the drum that they would play in like the, the pit area. Yeah, I don't think they. I don't think Latin was iambic pentameter, though. Um, I think that's an English form. But yeah, I think the the same thing is going on in classical theater. It was musical, uh, or believed to be musical. I don't know much about Roman theater, but in Greek theater, it was certainly musical. And um, the survival of that theater as texts, it's like it's like um, Greek statues, which we think of statues as being austerely white marble, um, but they were actually garishly painted. And the idea that statues are white the way you see them in museums now, that's not how the Greeks saw them. And so when we read their plays, we're actually not internalizing their plays the way they were performed, which was that they were sung. Uh, same with Homer, who was sung. So, um, but when you get to Shakespeare, when you get to Elizabethan theater, what you're getting is the, is the flow of the words, usually without music. But if actors forget their lines, it's easiest to ad lib if you're in the swing of iambic pentameter. And the ad libbing is, it looks like you haven't forgotten your lines, even if you have, because you're staying in the swing and you're not pausing and stuttering. So um, just being able to bullshit your way through iambic pentameter, that was an important talent for an actor to have. And yeah. So, but then since we're talking about the music and the flow, wouldn't like a ballad meter more easier to go? Because it's ballad, it's actually singing, or at least the rhythm. I don't think, I don't think it's as easy to ad lib ballads. I think because, first of all, you have to be rhyming, which is much harder. And you also have to, the thing about ballads is you have to hit the line endings. Well, it's the same thing as rhyming. You have to hit the line endings um, right so that they're also phrase endings. Whereas with iambic pentameter, the end of a line doesn't have to be the end of a sentence or the end of a phrase. And as long as you can keep it going, and you know, it's, it's clear that Shakespeare could. The reason he could write so fast was that he was um, so good at improvising an iambic pentameter. His friend Ben Jonson, who was, um, some of you will know this from the Shakespeare lecture last, last term. Johnson was about um, uh, 15 years younger than Shakespeare, and he really, really, really was a classicist and uh, knew classical literature really well. And he and Shakespeare were rivals, sometimes friendly, sometimes not that friendly. And um, he wrote a poem for the first folio. He, was, uh, he talked about uh, after Shakespeare died, he was willing to say how, how good Shakespeare was. But he has a famous line where he says, people praise Shakespeare, and one thing that people say about him is that he never blotted a line. So that's the, that's, uh, the famous sentence of Johnson's, that he never blotted a line. So Shakespeare's friends were saying, wow, Shakespeare's amazing. He just sits down and writes. And he never has to rewrite a line. To blot means to cross out. Um, so he never had to do that. 
And Johnson's response to that is basically, yes, and you can tell. Um, what he says is, um, I, I, I am sure this is true, but I say, would he had blotted a thousand? Um, so to the extent, you know, that's Shakespeare's reputation in his own day is that he could just sit down and write. And that is a way of just being completely in the flow of iambic pentameter. And getting into the flow of iambic pentameter is probably, really probably is the easiest thing you can do in English. If you try to, if you try to do, if you try to extemporize a, a ballad, I think it's actually really, really hard. Um, it, you can kind of do limericks for a little while. There once was a playwright named Shakespeare who wrote, whether sober or on beer. <laughs> he blotted no lines. Um, and <laughs> um, while drinking lines. his wines. What? Blotted no lines and neglected the use of time. <laughs> See, the, no. It doesn't come together. That's sort of the sound of the top of my mouth. I appreciate the effort. All right, he he blotted no lines. When a character whines, um, you can bet that he'll sound just like King Lear. <laughs> All right. But in the right mood, I can do iambic pentameter a lot more quickly than that. Yeah. Uh, I, the thing which you said about dreaming in iambic pentameter reminded me of I think in the 18th century because you said something about like when you read sapphics you start dreaming differently. But I guess it's really hard to ad lib in sapphics. So. It is hard. It's really hard to ad lib <laughs> in sapphics. Um, but yeah, sapphics are are a complex form um, invented by the poet Sappho and usually used for elegy. And uh, they're pretty amazing, but they're very hard to ad-lib. The, no, the part you can do is the last line of a sap, sapphic, which always goes da-da-da-da-da. Um, we were interviewing Marilyn Hacker, who taught here for a while. Do people know who she is? Uh, great contemporary poet. Uh, we were interviewing her a long time. She'd written a book called Sapphics on Anger. And the last, sapphics are four-line stanzas where the last line is a short line that goes da-da-da-da-da. And... Uh, Professor Burt pointed out that her name was like the last um, line of a sapphic, Marilyn Hacker. And um, um, so I turned to him and I said, I, I set this up so perfectly, I was so proud. I said, um, do you think you could always ad-lib last lines of a sapphic? And he said, could if I had to. Um, so um, I'm sure he doesn't remember this, but I like that moment. Um, someone's hand was up. Okay, knocking the gate in Macbeth. What is De Quincey's argument? Yes, Cassie. Okay. Um, I'm still not sure after like looking at this a number of times whether I entirely get it, but I think that De Quincey is arguing um, that it's an important moment because it's sort of a turning point, even though it doesn't necessarily feel like it, because um, he makes this really complicated argument about how, in order to under, in order to not exactly empathize with but to have sympathy with which he's like very particular about thinking the word sympathy um with Macbeth as a murderer which is like a bad thing most people would agree um <coughs> we need to sort of like indulge the idea that he's in like a hell basically um like I, I'm not explaining that particular part of it well but um the knocking at the gate is a sort of like 
signal to the audience that we've, like, entered this state where, like, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, to a lesser extent, are sort of, like, less than human and indulging in this, like, weird state of being where they're, like, sort of not entirely subject to human morals and human experience. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. So what... What he he's making a particular argument. I think you're absolutely right to be focusing on sympathy there. He's making a particular argument about whether the knocking of the gate um, works theatrically, and he his argument is that 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 particular thing does work, even though people like Coleridge were convinced that it was um, foisted on by actors who were ad libbing. That that particular, or that the porter was ad libbing, that that particular thing does work because what it does is it acts as a kind of frame to the murder itself. So if you ask yourself, what would happen if you didn't have the knocking at the gate and the porter responding that way? And um, his answer is essentially that the murder would be too continuous with what comes after it. That is, that the, um, so it would be the plot summary. Macbeth kills Duncan, there's a knocking, it turns out to be Ross and Willoughby, etc. Um, and all of that would just be the plot unfolding. But that instead, what you get is this knocking, and we're aware of it, Macbeth is aware of it, and then suddenly the play shifts its register so much that Macbeth and what he's just done is he's he's isolated from what happens next. That is, it's like I think what what De Quincey is doing here is both seeing something that's different about um, Shakespeare's non-unity of time and place that we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago. That is the fact that in Shakespeare, scenes shift from time to time and place to place. But also he's anticipating something of the way movies and TV shows work, which is that when something horrible happens, especially in a horror movie, and then we will frequently, after the horrible moment, even after a murder, after um, something really intense happens, what, what a movie will do is it will dissolve or fade in or fade out to something completely different from what we've just seen. And what that means is the thing we've just seen doesn't get absorbed into what follows it. It stands out more starkly than it would if you simply had continuous events happening. It's like the end of a chapter. And what De Quincey is saying is you couldn't have something in Shakespeare that feels more like the end of a chapter than to have the knocking at the gate come next and the porter acting the way he does. Yes, thank you. And he's also saying that the, the, the porter thing kind of literally kind of dramatizes the kind of the returning of the, uh, the human realm into the play. So it, it kind of it literally closes down the gate, the gate of the hell, the human vitality and obscenity. 
Yeah, so it's it's the returning of the human, like um, when after royalty passes through your town um, and everyone is hushed and in silence, suddenly you hear uh, the wheel of a carriage and you're back to your ordinary world. But it also has the effect, when it does that, of of, as you say, closing the gate so that the gate is closed on Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. They belong to that murder. And now there's this other thing going on, which is everyone else, the people who live in Scotland, the Scottish people who are going to be oppressed by and eventually turn against Macbeth. And there's a huge line drawn between them. And it is the, the jokiness of the porter that um, allows, um, that, 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 that um, constitutes that line. And I think that's right. That is that you hear all this knocking, and we in the theater, um, we don't know who's knocking. We know the porter is um, both funny and um, he's talking about hell, that it may be people who are trying to get into hell who are knocking. And that comic scene has the effect not of decreasing but of increasing our sense of horror at what Macbeth has done. And that seems like a brilliant thing for De Quincey to have described, to have, to have noticed. Yeah. So you were talking about how this is like an end of chapter, but what if like Shakespeare ended like literally an end of an act to end this act with this? But we don't know act endings. So if you're, if you're watching a Shakespeare play, this is a crucial thing. When you read a Shakespeare play, they're always divided into five acts. Some modern editions won't divide them into five acts, won't divide all of them into five acts. But basically, when Shakespeare's plays were printed in the folio and usually in the quartos, they were always divided into five acts. The reason being that that was a standard division. But Shakespeare may or may not have done the division into acts himself. Uh, you may notice that when we do Antony and Cleopatra, there are two different act divisions in Antony and Cleopatra, which makes it sometimes hard to um, locate things because in one version, uh, the act three goes on forever and act four is short, and in another version, act three and four are more normal in length. And um, the only thing you see, you know, you guys all know that American movies have a three-act structure, right? And... Um, if you're really, really good, if you've taken screenwriting or if you're really, really good at film analysis, you can go see a new movie and say, okay, now we're going into act three. And you can notice the kinds of things that happen at the ends of acts. But the three-act structure is not in screenplays. The three-act structure is just a way, it's a heuristic or a guide for screenwriters to think about what they have to do in movies. And that goes back to Aristotle who says that all tragedies have to have, wait for it, this is actually an amazing insight, although it seems so obvious, have to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And Aristotle very kindly tells us what a beginning is. A beginning is that which you don't need anything before it for the story to start. And an end is that which... Yeah, because it's ended, whereas a middle and, and something after it. Um, but that's basically the three-act structure right there, that the beginning sets things up, 
the middle is the consequence of those things, but we don't know where they're going to go yet, and the end is now there's no other place to go. Um, in Shakespeare, for Shakespeare, you know, you could think of Shakespeare's plays as having a three-act structure also, even though they're printed with five acts. There's nothing sacred about act divisions. What is sacred are scene divisions. And again, this is something that you need to know about how it works on stage, is that the end of a scene in Shakespeare, some of you know this from the lecture, how do you know that a scene is over? Yeah? Everybody's going to leave because there's no curtain. Right. So everyone leaves the stage, and that's the end of a scene. And what does that require for the beginning of the next scene? Yeah? I think at least one of the characters that enters in the next scene has to be not have been in the scene before. All the characters. Oh, wait, all of the characters. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the, the, the stage empties, and then another group of people come in. So that you know it's not continuous, that you don't have unity of space and time, because what is defining a scene, what defines the opening of any scene, are the people within it. And so a scene is a social space. It always establishes a social space and begins as a social space. And although there can be people leaving and people entering into that social grouping, it always is a new social grouping, means the beginning of a new scene. And the social space tells you that time is not continuous with, with, doesn't have to be continuous with what just happened, and that it doesn't have to take place in the same place. As you'll see in Ending Cleopatra, we get whipsawed between Alexandria and Rome, and the way we know we're in Rome is the, that Caesar and his men come in. The way we know we're in Alexandria is that Antony and his, and Cleopatra and their um, friends come in. In Macbeth, how do we know we're in England, not Scotland? like the exiled princes. Yeah, because Malcolm is there and Macduff says, hi, Malcolm, here I am in England with you. <laughs> um, and how do we know we're in Macduff's castle? Macduff's yeah, and how do we know we're in Macbeth's castle or in Foray's? Yeah, so um, how do we know we're in Dunsinane? <laughs> yeah, and it's one army, and then we go to another army. Again, if you think of Game of Thrones, have you heard of Game of Thrones? Yeah, it's also, it's also a series of books. I know. Rise and Fire. Yes, I know Game of Thrones. Okay, good. I know you do. Um, a series of uh, books that will, who knows if they'll ever be done. Um, but, yeah, so we, so we go, um, you know, we're constantly going back and forth among all the different kingdoms, and um, there's always something telling us where we are. Um, and, you know, usually the first thing we'll see is, you know, light and scenery to tell us that we're somewhere else. And it always means that you don't have the same characters. I think actually Game of Thrones, I haven't thought about this, but I think it's pretty rigorous about this, is that if Littlefinger is going to the north or something, um, he won't say, I'm going to go to the north, and then we'll see him in the next scene in the north. He'll say, I'm going to the north, then we'll cut to the north, and um, um, whoever, whoever's there will be there. Jon Snow, I don't I actually know if he goes there, but Jon Snow will be there, and um, then we will hear that Littlefinger is coming. But he won't say, I'm going X place, and then we'll be in another kingdom, and he'll be there in the very next scene. Uh, we have to establish the place first, 
and then the character can enter. So in Shakespeare, you have these social spaces which um, are defining different scenes, and then you can have people coming from one social grouping leaving that social grouping by entering into another social grouping. So, the, so in a scene, a thing that will happen frequently, not always, but frequently, is that a social grouping will reform itself. People will exit, people will enter, so the social grouping at the beginning of a scene will frequently be different from the social grouping at the end of a scene. If someone exits a scene, then they can be part of the, of the next scene. As long as they weren't on stage at the end of scene one, they can enter and be on stage in scene two. So they can exit scene one, they can say, um, I am going to, I'm not going to stick around anymore, I'm actually going to join your enemies now, um, as in Coriolanus, or as you'll see in Antony and Cleopatra, and then they can storm off, and then in the next scene they can come in with the enemies, and now they're part of a different social group. Yeah. Can they um, be there for the end of scene one and then enter in the middle of scene, of scene two? Yeah. 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 This is all just intuition for the audience. So if the audience sees a bunch of different people, um, they assume that they're in a different place. And it's not for them, like, it's not that they're keeping track, it's just that they're noticing. Um, in the same way that we notice in movies or in Game of Thrones when we've gone um, from the Targaryens to um, wherever. And yeah. it just so happens that George R. R. Martin is the coolest guy wearing a train conductor's cap that may, may ever exist, and that includes all train conductors. Um, could be. Um, yeah. I've always thought so. <laughs> there um, you go. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, no, I was just thinking. Okay. I, yeah. It's just interesting because I'm thinking about it in Macbeth, and I'm just sort of... It, it, I mean, obviously it's true because you're telling us, but it's interesting. No, no, no. The <laughs> fact that I'm telling you does not make it true. No, but like, it, I, I'm thinking about it like sort of scene by scene and being like, well, at the end of Act 1, Scene 1, I'm, what is it? They're on the battlefield and they're coming in, Banquo, Beth, blah, blah. Yeah. And then they will leave and then it's Duncan's castle and then yeah it, it just, I'm sorry just like thinking about it's one thing hearing it and then it's another thing sort of like yeah or Lady Macbeth comes in yeah. reading a letter that Macbeth has yeah. sent her so yeah it's just interesting yeah, and so one thing so if you if you take the first act of Macbeth it is the, um, uh, Duncan says okay Macbeth is now going to be Thane of Cawder and then we um, the next scene Macbeth and Banquo and uh, the witches are talking so, so and then Macbeth and Banquo come in and Macbeth doesn't know what we already know. Um, and a way of putting this, again, this is what the French and the classic critics didn't like about Shakespeare, but it's what makes Shakespeare so cinematic. A way of putting this is to say that there is no point of view from which you as an individual person could be seeing what's going on in a Shakespeare play. In classical drama, you are given the point of view of someone who happens to be there, uh, a bystander. And classical drama always gives you a bystander's point of view. Um, in Shakespearean drama, the, there is no plausible way that you could be present to or be a witness of the things that you're seeing. And that can have the interesting effect of making you forget your own presence as you're as you're absorbed in what you're watching, but it or 
you know, there has to be some way of describing how it is that you get, uh, how you get so absorbed and anxious about something that you couldn't possibly be witnessing if it were really happening. That's always been the mystery of theater, but a mystery partially explained away in classical theater, which is just imagine you're part of a public place um, and you're one of the crowd that's present as Oedipus and Creon and um, the messenger and Tiresias um, address the crowd, so you're part of the crowd. And in Shakespeare, you can't be part of the crowd. That just can't happen. And that, that has the really, really interesting effect that we forget that we're there, but we can still intuit where we are or where what we're watching is taking place. Royce, were you going to say something? No. Okay. Um, but I had a question. Before. Okay. Yeah, that's what so, I thought. Um, so, the knocking, so the knocking function is perfect here, uh, but we are still not sure um, whether Shakespeare is aware of it, right? Oh, I think, I think Shakespeare is aware of it. So what De Quincey is arguing is the knocking, the, the Porter speech and the knocking at the gate is really essential to the play, whereas people like Coleridge were saying it wasn't essential, it was just something that added and that, that ruins the mood. And De Quincey is saying not only does it not ruin the mood, it actually makes the mood. It makes it all the more powerful. Uh, there's an early 20th century Shakespeare critic named um, Harvey Granville Barker, who you guys all know the term comic relief. And um, so that's a standard thing to say about the knocking of the Aiden Macbeth, that it's comic relief. And if you ask, well, what's comic relief? That seems like psychologically plausible. You don't really think about it, but it's like things are too tense and now we need a little break. We need a little bit of relaxation. That's not what De Quincey is arguing about it, though. He's not saying you get relaxation. Um, like, oh, good, a funny scene, because this was really getting a little bit too grim for me. Um, what he is arguing is that the funniness of that scene makes it grimmer, that there's um, a really interesting psychological experience that you're having, which is that the comic relief um, doesn't relieve you of the sense of horror, but increases it. So what Granville Barker says is that you should think of comic relief as a little bit like like ba relief, that is, that relief doesn't mean, oh, now I'm relieved, I'm relaxed. But what does relief mean in um, sculpture, anyone? Like it comes off the, off the panel? Yeah, so you can have low relief or high relief, but what it means is that you're looking at something that is pictorial, but it's carved. So it's when you have um, a carved picture. It's not an actual sculpture but it's carved into stone. And that is called relief because it's the French meaning of the word relief, which means it stands out. And um, comic relief, he says, should be thought of as a different way of um, showing the same emotion, bringing it out a little bit, and that you should think of it as looking, the reason relief rather than painting, the reason people will sometimes carve things rather than paint them, is that you see them from different angles. That if you're looking at a painting, you're always looking at the same picture, no matter what angle you're looking at it from, with, with very, very slight variation in angle. But if you're looking at carved relief, it's more like a hologram. That is, that as you look at it from a different angle, you are seeing different things. And um, 
the different things you're doing contributes to the fullness of the horror, that is that there's a grotesque aspect to it, that from one angle what's going on here is funny but grotesque rather than funny and now I don't have to worry anymore. And that certainly seems true about the knocking at the gate. Macbeth is horrified by the knocking, and then the knocking just keeps going on and on and on, and we don't know who's knocking either. Why are people knocking? What's going on there? And the porter isn't opening the door. He's too busy um, making his jokes about hell. And since we don't know who's knocking, you know, in a way we think it's God. We think it's the devil. We think it's someone come to take Macbeth right there. Um, Alex, you're end up. Yeah, I was just could one argue because I agree with those with the points. The fact that you know it makes it darker because, well, I mean, at least my sense of like when something bad happens, I tend to make jokes about it and like yeah. it's not a good thing, but you know it tends to. And so I can understand that sort of argument. That, but would could one also argue because it's such an intense scene, which is so. In, Everyone always talks about Shakespeare, how he caters to both the rich and the poor, mm -hmm. and how the poor might not not appreciate, but sort of they would appreciate dick jokes more, or like jokes about the drunk a drunk guy telling mm -hmm. jokes more. Mm -hmm. Could you argue that it was sort of sort of to take some pressure off and sort of be like people get a kind of not bored, but like it, does that make sense? It does, but again, I think the way to think of it mm -hmm. is. I guess the main thing to say is that Shakespeare is as sophisticated in his management of um, mood and coloration in his scenes as any movie you can imagine. And that what you can imagine are uh, the kind, that, that what's going on here is everyone is frightened of the murder. There's no question about that. And when Lady Macbeth is saying, you know, if he hadn't resembled my father as he slept, I would have done it that everyone, there's no one in the audience who doesn't get what the horror of that moment. And then Macbeth not being able to say amen and hearing sleep no more and um, Macbeth have murdered sleep, all of that is really, really intense. So it's not like um, the kind of jokes that you sometimes get in Romeo and Juliet, which are just, look at, look at the really funny things I can say now. But it's also the case that for different parts of the audience, uh, the very fact that, let's say, people in the pit are laughing, I'm not sure they would at this, but, let, but when, when the porter starts making jokes about urine and, um, pr and performance, whether uh, how drink both um, uh, gives you the desire but takes away the performance, that, yeah, there'll be laughter, and to some of that laughter will be nervous. And nervous laughter is something that Shakespeare wants there. That is that, um, and if there are people who don't appreciate those jokes, then they're going to feel a little bit, even a little bit more alienated from what's going on or a little bit more um, uh, um, frightened and, and solitary um, when they hear other, other people laughing at jokes that right then they're not in a mood to get. And so the very laughter of part of the audience can be part of the mood that Shakespeare is orchestrating. If he can get some of the audience to laugh, then the mood of the whole audience gets a little bit more grotesque also. And a lot of that laughter will be nervous. A lot of people will want to be laughing because things have been too intense. But the laughing won't be universal. 
and then um, their own laughter will start fi- start ringing hollow to them. And I think that's something that Shakespeare is orchestrating. Just to get, um, uh, since we have uh, like three minutes left, um, look at what De Quincey, um, again, I think this is a very powerful thing for De Quincey to say and a very, very deep insight into Macbeth, something um, not unlike Coleridge's insight, but maybe a little bit deeper here. Murder in ordinary cases where the sympathy is wholly directed to the case of the murdered person, this is the second page of De Quincey, is an incident of coarse and vulgar horror. And for this reason, so murder, is, we, we feel sympathy for the person who's murdered. And that's an incident, of course, in vulgar horror, and for this reason that it flings the interest exclusively upon the natural but ignoble instinct by which we cleave to life, an instinct which, as being indispensable to the primal law of self-preservation, is the same in kind, though different in degree, amongst all living creatures. So um, when we see someone being murdered who doesn't want to be murdered, we immediately have sympathy for them, but that's natural. This instinct, therefore, because it annihilates all distinctions and degrades the greatest of men to the level of the poor people that we tread on, exhibits human nature in its most abject and humiliating attitude. Such an attitude would little suit the purposes of the poet. What must he then do? He must throw the interest on the murderer. Um, anyone know what's being quoted, the poor, pe- the poor beetle that we tread on? It's actually a very slight misquotation. Those of you who took Shakespeare in the fall. Could you give us a hint? (laughs) It's by Shakespeare. (laughs) The poor beetle that we tread upon feels um, corporeal pain as when a giant perishes. No, it's Isabella in in, uh, in, um, Measure for Measure. Um, Okay, so... Instinct to self-preservation, everyone wants to live. Sympathy for those who are murdered, that's easy. But Shakespeare does something different. Our sympathy must be with him, says De Quincey. And um, he's about to explain that. We can pick up with that on Friday. But the idea that, yeah, the amazing thing about Macbeth is that we are sympathizing with the murderer, that he is the central tragic figure in the play. That is strange. By the death of one of the authors, um, 